Paratopia, it is Jeremy Vaney here. And Jeff Ritzman on the other end. <laughs> Whatever end that might be. Is this human centipede or is this Paratopia? I, I, well, let's not go there. We don't want the kids to hear. <laughs> That's right. Uh, if you're hearing the sound of our voices, that must mean it's a midweek special. Yes, that's right. And what makes this so special? I'm not in it. Wait, no. Yay. Nobody cares. Uh, so Jeff, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, well, that's been proven time and time again. Uh, give us a little background here. What happened? <laughs> how, did uh, we, how did we come to this special? Well, we came to this special because I was over at the uh, psychedelic salon, uh, basically reading uh, our own message board, and someone had posted a little link to the salon. And on there, I found right above the shows, I found a link that said, "Support Dennis McKenna's." Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. I said, what is this? And I click on it. And um, and if you go to kickstarter.com, uh, you'll find up near the top of the screen a search box. Type McKenna in there, M-C-K-E-N-N-A. And you'll see a link that will pop up called The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. And what Dennis is doing is he is writing a book about his brother himself, uh, their relationship together, um, their adventures often uh, in in weirdness and um, and, a, and a whole lot more. I mean, he's really essentially what he says is it's his his memoirs. And as painful as it was for me to hear it from him, you know, he says, "I'm 60 years old. I want to do this before I'm drooling in a cup somewhere." And so he's essentially um, funding his book through Kickstarter and. Uh, for $35 uh, that you can pledge, you're essentially pre-buying the book. That's what you're doing. Because for a pledge of $35, uh, you would get an autographed hard copy of the book when it's completed. You'll also get a PDF copy of the book. You'll get your name added to his mailing list where you can track progress of the book and and read occasional posts that he'll put up. Um, so it's, a, it's just a pre-sale of the book, really. But he needs to raise eighty thousand uh, dollars in order to fund this project because it's a pretty big undertaking. And so far, uh, happy to report here at Tuesday night at ten thirty p.m., uh, he's gotten thirty-eight thousand two hundred and twenty-two dollars, which is about halfway. Um, and so I immediately dropped him a line and I said, um, "God, we've got to get you on. We've got to get you on now um, to tell our listeners about this because." This is a man all the way back from episode seven who I think uh, has had as, as big an influence on my life as his brother just because he talked with me for about uh, two and a half hours one day on the phone about the mushroom, what to expect, what not to worry about, <laughs> you know. And, um, and then we had this really long conversation before this interview that you're going to hear tonight. And, um, 
he's just he's a great guy and he's a great guy and um and this book needs to be written well because this is from his perspective this is the main thing is it's from his perspective and we haven't we haven't gotten a lot of that and i, th- I think that's what what makes this book so special and and here's what makes the show so special is that this was supposed to be a 15 minute uh recording you know just yeah. sort of a pitch to our audience to please help fund this <laughs> right and it just it turned into uh, about you know just a little over ninety minutes. You'll hear. Yeah. Uh, I mean that's just incredible. And allegedly, you tried to call me. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I kept I didn't getting hear this the phone ring. No, I got this weird busy signal. So it's like you know you actually rang me on Skype, which I didn't even think about. Um, and you rang me on Skype right as we were hanging up. <laughs> so, um, but Dennis will be back on the show again to. Um, but in a way, this is like your sort of your special moment with Dennis McKenna. It was great. I mean, it was fantastic. And um, I really want to make this thing happen, or at least I want us to do our part in pushing out the word to everyone. And so uh, I guess really one of, the, one of the main things I want to say is donate to this book. I mean, $35, you're going to buy it anyway, you guys and gals who are into this sort of thing and, um, and have listened to this show with any kind of frequency. You know the McKenna name is brought up more frequently than most and spread it on your Facebook. You know, if every listener that we got could throw it up on their Facebook and say, here's the link, which you can get by the way, on our homepage at paratopia.net. Um, the further the word can spread the better. And I think this is just a really worthwhile project. So I I wanted to get him on immediately. And so it went so long. I thought, well, let's put it out Wednesday. Let's get this out now. Let's not fool around till Friday. And so Friday, of course, we'll still have our regular show, but this is just something that, you know, if you want to spread it around the internets or whatever you want to do with this this episode, it's yours free to have. Go do what you will. Yes. Yes. This is not a subscription episode at all or anything like that. This is out to the masses. It's so special. We decided to make it special. And free. <laughs> all right. Without further ado, here is uh, Jeff Ritzman's impromptu feature-length interview with Dennis McKenna. Paratopia, I'm joined by a very old, dear friend of the show, not seen since episode seven, (laughs) Dr. Dennis McKenna. Dennis, how are you? I'm good, Jeff. How are you? It's good to be back. Well, it's good to have you back, sir. And you're coming on this show uh, at at my request, uh, and I appreciate it, on a late Sunday night. Uh, for a very special reason, because I heard you have a project going uh, on Kickstarter that you're trying to get funded, and it's a uh, it, it's quite an important project. And I was wondering if you would just lay it out for our audience what exactly you're doing, and uh, and how they can help you. Great. Well, yeah, I'd be happy to. And and actually, the gratitude is mine because uh, I'm I'm really. Happy to be back. I had a wonderful time on on the first installment, and uh, I was a little disappointed you didn't call me back <laughs> sooner. <laughs> we just figured I mean, you were down the jungle somewhere, you know. I mean, <laughs> I've been and gone to the jungle several times since we talked, but but uh, anyway, I'm happy to be back, and uh, and uh, I, I think this will be a great opportunity to let folks know about this project, which is. Well, as you say, I've set up a page on Kickstarter 
It's called uh, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. Nice. Uh, uh, My Life with Terrence McKenna. And tentatively, this will be the title of the book as well. I've decided that, you know, now is the time to write my memoirs in a sense, to, and in a sense to tell the, the true story, the inside story of, you know, the life that Terrence and I shared. There's a lot of interest in that and the ideas that we shared. They think of people think of them as my ideas. Well, they were or his ideas. Actually, as many of them were mine as his. We were kind of, you know, we shared these ideas right. and we shared many of these adventures. And uh, Terrence, you know, has passed on uh, ten years ago, and you know, I'm still here. And uh, but I feel like he's very present, and I feel like his words and his ideas are are very much out there on the net. And I'm just always when I hear or or listen to him, you know, it's as timely as as though it was yesterday. I mean, he was ahead of his time in that respect, and oh, many yes. many many people feel the same way because because he does have such a presence on the net and I get students all the time in my classes. The reason they sign up for my classes is not because I'm teaching them, but because Terrence they has influenced them. And a lot of these young folks, twenty somethings, you know, I mean they were they were very young. They were pre they were in diapers when Terrence was at the height of his of his career. And yet here they are. And so many of them write to me and say, Oh my God, uh, you know, he changed my life. You guys, your ideas changed my life. And just, you know, I just want you to know that. So I felt like there was a whole constituency out there that want to hear this story. And, um, and I want to tell the story for a number of reasons. I mean, for one thing, I, I just crossed the threshold of, of 60 uh, in December. And so now I'm a geezer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Before, but now it's really in my face, you know? <laughs> I'm getting older. I'm not going to be around forever. And I do have a story to tell. So there is that. It's It's time to try to create the space and the time, which is what the Kickstarter is about, to actually sit down and seriously, uh, you know, tell this tale because a lot of people want to hear it and I want to tell it. And, you know, I'm getting this, I mean, so far the feedback I've gotten from people and it's pretty, it's getting widespread on Facebook and all over the net, no negative response at all. You know, I mean, hundreds of people have written to me now and are saying, finally, you know, it's about time. This is what I wanted to hear for a long time and things along that line. So I feel, um, you know, I feel like now's the time to do it uh, before I get too old, uh, before, well, I can still remember stuff, you know, before dementia sets in and (laughs) they send me off to drool in my gruel somewhere. (laughs) Right. You know, and and also before 2012, Mm -hmm. uh, because 2012 is coming down the pike. And uh, while I am very skeptical that, you know, I mean, I I haven't canceled my appointments for 2013. (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen in 20, you know, if this event 
that Terence predicted is going to mean anything or you know or will it be global catastrophe will it be a, a change in in global consciousness or will it just be eh, not much happened here we are it's right. you know december 22nd 2012 and here we are you know and the sun right. came we're all the still sun. here yeah we're all still here i don't know but i i would like to get this story out. So if I start now, the way the cycle of the publishing and everything works, if I start writing it this summer, I'll have about six to eight clear months to really buckle down and work on it, get it out there in fall of 2012. And in people will have time to buy it and read it, uh, you know, in time for the apocalypse or, you know, if the apocalypse doesn't happen, they can give it away for Christmas. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I figure the timing is good. I mean, it's basically now is the time. Yeah. yeah. And I want to tell the tale that I'm getting a lot of really uh, supportive feedback about this. So I'm going for it. You know, I'm trying to do it. I've never tried a Kickstarter thing before. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a a crash course in Facebook, and uh, I'm a quick learner, but there's a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah, very interesting medium, which I always kept at arm's length because I'm basically, uh, I mean, I'm I'm you know I'm not that social a person, but you have to become engaged in these networks because the. Uh, because, the, you know, you got a whole bunch of people. And what I'm finding is there's a whole lot of people that basically love Terrence and love me. And, uh, you know, maybe they love Terrence a little better because they know him better. But there is so much, uh, you know, you just get this uh, this feeling, even though it's all email and, and stuff. You just get this feeling there's a whole lot of love out there. Yeah. Um, and I'm touched by that, actually. Um, and so that makes me, you know, even more determined to try and do, uh, you know, a hell of a good job with this book, because now it's not just that I want to write the book and make some money and whatever. I actually feel like now I've got a responsibility to my community, I guess you is what you would call it to really do the best job I can. Ultimately, we're going to have a, a, a link on our Facebook or on our rather on our homepage um, about this because, uh, you know, Kickstarter, you know, I'm looking at the page right now and mm-hmm. um, your goal is eighty thousand dollars. And That's right. you're at thirty four thousand, a little over that now, almost thirty five, actually. Mm-hmm. And people can pledge a dollar, five dollars, twenty dollars, thirty five, seventy, hundred, five hundred, a thousand, five thousand. Yeah, and there's all these denominations. So it's like, you know, to me, I look at this and I go, there, there's no way that we can't, uh, you know, put this out because I, I mean, for one, uh, I've got to read this book. <laughs> I've got to read right. this and book. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I got to have it, you know, I have to write it for you to read it. Yeah. To, yeah. I mean, that, um, that's right. That that's the way Kickstarter works. There are these different levels of incentives mm-hmm. and people are not really donating. You're not, you know, you're. I'm pre-selling it essentially, or I'm pre-selling That's the exactly, book yeah. and certain products, certain services that I would provide, like giving seminars and that kind of thing. And uh, 
so it seems like a win-win. I mean, I'm asking for advance payment to, you know, let me create the time to actually create this thing. But the promise is then folks will get something back out of it in due time. And hopefully they'll feel that their money was well invested. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think when you look at it, it, I'm looking at it right here for $35 or more, you get uh, an autographed hard copy of the book, you know, and your name added to a mailing list uh, where you can track yeah. the progress of the book, you know, just going backwards from everything that is up to that level. You're looking at, right. you know, a PDF copy of the book when it's done, you know, then the autograph hard yeah. copy and all of that. So, I mean, really, where are you going to go buy a hard copy of a book like this? Uh, yeah, you won't. You, you won't. Exactly right. <laughs> I mean, this is not like yeah. you know, you're asking for the moon here. And, um, and for and in most cases so far, that's the level that most of the donations have have come in on yeah. around thirty five dollars. I've gotten one five thousand dollar donation, which I was completely surprised, but yeah. very happy to get. I've gotten a few hundred dollar donations. Um, uh, you know, and so I'm trying to create these different investment levels, I would say, and, and give something of value back. Yeah. And as I look at it, uh, and I want to say this to your audience, you know, you cannot, the way Kickstarter works, you can't change the bar once you've set it. I can't say, well, okay, I, it's only $60,000. I can't change that. Right. Um, and so it's all or nothing. You either make the threshold or you don't. If you don't make it, nobody's credit card is charged and nobody loses except the the fool, in this case me, who set the bar too high. So <laughs> nobody is going to lose out of this except me. Uh, potentially we can all win. What I can do is I can modify the project and uh, – and I can change the incentive levels. Uh, I can, like if people, and, and uh, essentially this is what I want to say to your audience. If you look at the incentives and you say, well, you know, for $1,000, he'll give a two-hour Skype interview. And I don't really want that. I want something else. So what I'm saying is I am open to suggestions. If people have ideas for better incentives, uh then I want to hear about that because those I can change before the funding window closes. And, uh, you know, I just thought up these incentive levels on the spur of the moment kind of, and I said, Oh, that sounds good. We'll do, you know, so many levels and it sounds good. But if people have better ideas for the higher incentives, um, then let me know about that, you know, uh, either through your site or my site, whatever. I, I'm open to suggestions. Yeah. And uh, so that's one thing. So the question is, well, I, I guess one thing maybe I should explain um, as long as we're on this topic is why did I choose this title? <laughs> and maybe the project site explains that, but maybe I should explain it a little uh, more thoroughly in the the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss is uh, a historical reference, really, to, you know, when Terrence and I and our 
band of companions went down to the Amazon in 1971 to try and discover these DMT containing hallucinogens, uh, that was what we called ourselves. I mean, it was, it was, it was tongue in cheek, really. I mean, we, all we really knew when we went down there, we were, we were so naive, Jeff, we had no idea what we were getting into, you know, um, we, in itself right there. (laughs) Well, or foolishness, you know, this (laughs) is the kind of stuff that you do when you're 20 years old and and think, you know, stuff, right. Right. Exactly. And, and so we went down there and all we really knew was we had had experiences with DMT, you know, in the Haight Ashbury in Berkeley, it was it was around. It was very rare. Uh, it wasn't something you found on the street like LSD or these other things. And mushrooms were completely unheard of. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, in, in reality, real psilocybin mushrooms were just not around. But but synthetic DMT was around a little bit, and it had crossed our paths, and we had taken it, and we thought. Holy shit, you know, this is the weirdest stuff, the weirdest, not just the weirdest drug, just the weirdest thing in in our universe that we had ever encountered. Right. And so we thought, well, you know, what's going on on the outside? I mean, we got Vietnam, we've got the hippies, we've got, you know, civil rights, we've got all this political unrest, you know, and none of it seemed... I mean, it was going on, but none of it seemed that interesting. What's the most interesting thing on the table? DMT. And so we thought, well, you know, we want to look at this because Terrence and I, for whatever reason, we were always attracted toward the peculiar and the uh, odd and the uh, outre, you might say, just... You know, and it probably had to do with reading way too much science fiction when we were young. <laughs> you know, right. but but we were always attracted to that. We thought, well, in the in the known universe, in our known universe, DMT absolutely tops everything. But there's a problem, which is that DMT is so bizarre and so quick that we can't get much out of it. We can all we can do when we take it is like it's 15 minutes of utter strangeness and then you're back and then you're you're babbling and and it's hard to put it together. It's it's like you know all you're saying is what the hell was that, you know? What happened? And so our rationale at the time was that Maybe if you could spend a longer time in that place, in that very strange dimension, you could sort of get your bearings and navigate and 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 bring more back than just just a sense of astonishment. Yeah. And so we weren't sure how to do that, but we heard about uh, this orally active uh, drug that was used in South America. Uh, called Ukuhe, used by the Witoto people, whose epicenter of distribution, whose ancestral uh, home, if if you will, was at La Chirera. And we, we stumbled on this paper by Ari Schultes that 
the famous Harvard ethnobotanist. And, and we thought, well, mate, and, it, and the paper was titled uh, Varola as an Orally Active Hallucinogen. And Varola is the genus of trees that this drug is made from, and the sap is full of DMT and other tryptamines. And uh, it's well known to be used in other parts of the Amazon as a snuff. And the reason it's used as a snuff is because DMT is not orally active normally. It's it's right. inactivated by an enzyme in your in your gut called monoamine oxidase, and that's the basis of ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is also an orally active form of DMT, where you may make it from two plants, one of which contains DMT and one of which contains another set of alkaloids called beta-carbolines, which happen to be very strong monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So you brew these two things together and you get an orally activated form of DMT. Well, at the time that we were doing all this in 69, 70, uh, that wasn't really understood about ayahuasca. It wasn't understood that it even contained DMT. So it was kind of not on the plate. I mean, we knew about ayahuasca, but we didn't, nobody at that time really had that strong handle on its chemistry. In fact, you know, I, no one did until I did my graduate work 10 years later. But that's another story. Um, so, so we thought, wow, this Varola, this, this is, this is the stuff and we need to go get this stuff and check it out. And so that's what we determined to do. And we had this, you know, this sort of uh, adventurous, you know, and tongue in cheek view of ourselves. So we and, you know, my brother and, and I and our companions, as we moved into the jungle, we said, we thought of ourselves as the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. <laughs> <laughs> nice title, but, by the way. Yeah. I mean, we knew that we were looking for something incredible. We were looking for a mystery, and it had all of those trappings of, you know, the journey into the heart of darkness and, and this and that. And, and so kind of tongue-in-cheek, tongue in uh, that's what we called ourselves, but also kind of seriously. <laughs> and, you know, it turned out to be maybe more serious than tongue-in-cheek in a certain way uh, because we went there, uh, we got there. That was an adventure in itself. And when we got to La Chirera, yes, well, the Watotos were there and Ukuhe was there. Uh and, but for various reasons, uh, we could, and if anybody who's read my brother's book, True Hallucinations, will will know this. But for various reasons, we were told that we couldn't just march into this village and start yammering about Ukuhe. Right. You know, especially not the way we looked. I mean, because we looked... Yeah, I mean, we were right out of Haight-Ashbury. I mean, we we were <laughs> far more colorful than any of the people we encountered. Right, right, <laughs> right. I mean, we had, you know, beards down to our chest and beads and bells and incense and dogs and parrots and monkeys. And, you know, it was a, it was a traveling circus, man. 
<laughs> what the poor monks and nuns must have thought when we marched into the clearing of this of this village, I don't know. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, I'm I'm sure they've never seen anything like it, and I'm sure that they were quite appalled. Right. And you know, but on the other hand, they were very kind, and they welcomed us, and they gave us a place to stay, and. And uh, we thought, well, you know, so here we are. So now we must uncover the secret of, uh, of Okuhe. Um, well, as it turned out, you know, eventually we did. It, it took a while. Um, actually, it took almost 10 years to really get it worked out because we didn't figure it out until I went back to the Amazon to do my graduate work in, in 1981. So that was 10 years later. But what we did find at La Chirera, we said, well, we'll just settle in. We got lots of dope and a nice place. So we'll just settle in and, and see what happens. And the around La Chirera, most of the area had been cleared for pasture land. And they had brought in these Cebu cattle. So there were these Cebu cattle, the humpback cattle, and it turns out that that's the the dung, the the shit of these cattle is the preferred substrate for Psilocybe cubensis, which is the big tropical, pan-tropical psilocybin mushroom. And it was very wet there. It rained all the time. So we were in a situation where, you know, there was all kinds of pastures, cow pies everywhere and basically big clusters of mushrooms growing out of every cow pie i mean you literally could not walk through the field without kicking these things over and we thought well um hmm, that's interesting we knew what they were i mean we'd done enough uh you know homework that we knew we had our botanical references and schulte's papers and all that and so we knew what they were but we didn't understand what they really were. We thought, great, there are all these psilocybin mushrooms around. We had not had any experience with psilocybin at that time, but we'd heard it's a great trip, a lot of fun, all that. So we said, well, you know, I mean, we didn't say these things consciously, but we just said, well, fantastic, you know, so we started taking them. And, uh, uh, here's we started an, here's taking an operative question for you, not to interrupt, but did you know what yeah. the LD 50 was at that point in time? Had no idea. Oh, <laughs> had no idea, oh, but they God. seemed very, but I mean, we knew it was high there. I don't think there is, I don't think an LD 50 has ever been established for psilocybin mm. because it is so compatible with human metabolism. I mean, it's, it goes through your system like water. And in that sense, in the sense that your body can handle it, there's no issue with toxicity. The question is not can your body handle it, can your head handle it, you know, can your mind handle it? And and that's a more problematic issue, you know. So so we started just consuming these things recreationally and uh with most psychedelics, you know, you consume one and then you lay off for a while and, you know, but in the circumstances we were in, it was so tempting and they were just there. And actually there wasn't, 
you know, what we had to eat from the local environment. We didn't have anything to eat from the local environment. We had to bring in our own food. So that was like canned goods and rice. Well, it turns out psilocybin mushrooms make, you know, pretty good omelets and, you know, pretty good uh, mushroom soup. And we could, you know, buy a chicken from the local guy and cut that up, put a few mushrooms in, put some rice in and have a delicious soup and then enjoy the results. Wow. (laughs) So that's what it was. We were... um, we were high uh, at low levels a lot of the time on these mushrooms, and we had great Colombian cannabis as well. And and my brother was, you know, complete, I mean, he he liked his cannabis. Let's put it that way. Sure. So yeah. we smoked that a lot, and um, what we found was that, you know, we suddenly were in a place where these ideas we're just floating around, you know, and uh, uh, it stimulated a lot of conversation, a lot of speculation uh, about the way things were or the way things might be. And uh, before long, you know, we, uh, well, (laughs) it's hard to explain, you know, people uh, on the outside looking at this would say that we were, we were uh, going around the bend perhaps, uh, or that we were definitely coming up with some ideas that were quite unconventional. Mm-hmm. And we knew that, but to us, it seemed to make sense. And it seemed that we were, we were making sense to each other. And we seemed to be in contact with uh, some entity, uh, which we visualized and even, even called the teacher, mm-hmm. that was transmitting all of this information. I mean, there was a definite feeling of an entity uh, or, or entities outside ourselves, not sure where they were located in space or time, but definitely, uh, you know, there on the psychic wavelength and transmitting all of this information, which seemed quite uh, odd, uh, but also quite interesting and, and quite... Um, what would you say? It made a certain amount of sense oh, okay. <laughs> to to us in our state. I mean, understandings about how the world was really made up out of language and how you can't really separate, you know, language and, uh, and you know, our own psychic uh, sphere from reality. In fact, it is reality. And... Uh, certain understandings about the way that nature worked in the jungle and the way that chemistry uh, regulated that environment much in the way that much in the way that that chemistry uh, regulates the environment inside of a cell and just a whole lot of really odd uh, ideas basically that seem to explain a whole lot about about something, about about something, right. you, you <laughs> about the nature of reality, about what yeah. we were understanding or experiencing. You know, that was it. And well, uh, well you said you had, you guys had actually visualized the teachers. Did, did you have a an icon for them? Did you have a absolutely the mantis? The mantis was the icon of the teacher. Really? Okay. Yeah. 
And uh, um, sometimes it was a mantis. Sometimes it was a, a dome-headed being, somewhat like the greys hmm. that they talk about in alien abductions, but but not really looking like that. And those we visualized as not... Well, none of these things were present. I mean, it's not like they were physically pre- present, right. but but the icon of the mantis um, kept coming up over and over again, and and insectoid themes were very prominent in this right. whole whole thing. The way that the I don't know if you've ever been to the Amazon, but the insects are always there as a as a subliminal presence, and the the noise, the electrical uh, sound that they make that permeates the jungle, and it goes up and it goes down, but it's very rarely quiet, and it's it's like this. It sounds like you know, circuits frying or something. I mean, it's a very, very strange sound. And the smells and the colors and the... And, of course, we're ripped on psilocybin, right? right. Well, yeah. So all of this is much more intense than usual. And you don't have to be on drugs and to be in the jungle and think it's pretty darn intense. It is very intense. Oh, I can't imagine. You are absolutely immersed in this in this environment of, of seething, boiling life all around you. I mean, it's, it's something else. And, uh, people that have been there, they know what I'm talking about. And those that haven't need to go. (laughs) Yeah. You can only experience it. You can't explain it. But so we had that, we had what we felt was, uh, a lot of information that was being downloaded to us very rapidly by this incredibly alien uh, uh, mantis-like uh, super intelligent non-human entity, but basically a bene- beneficent entity. I mean, it, like a like a stern schoolmaster or something. I said, look, you know, look, you monkeys, you need to understand this. Get, you know, pay attention, right? Yeah. It was all about pay attention. And we said, yes, sir, we're, we're paying attention. You bet. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and discussing it constantly and saying, well, what does this mean? And, and, and what can we do with it? That, that was the thing. The whole idea was what – so what do we do with this understanding? And it was like we were being given instructions um, through this medium to um, how we could apply this. And uh, and that's what the whole experiment is, La Chirera was about and, and what we attempted to do, uh, which I think I explained in podcast number seven. I don't know. Yeah, but. yeah. well, I mean, the object was to bring something back. I mean – uh, exactly from that place and that's um i mean here's a question i've always had for and and this came up i thought about this long after the last episode when uh when your brother had his ufo experience there and i've heard him talk about this multiples mm. of multiple times uh mm-hmm. the last time that i heard him talk about it he said that he would they, that that all of you essentially were uh lightly intoxicated on mushrooms at the most vacant times of, of usage on, on, you know, at that place, uh, that, that that there wasn't really a downtime. 
So he described that he was lightly intoxicated on mushrooms, but that the experience that he had, which involved a flying saucer that could not have been uh, Mm -hmm. because it was a Hoover vacuum cap. Right. um, It was the classical, what's his name? George Adamski. It was, that's what it was. So now I didn't see this. Right. But, 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 but you were, you were, um, I'm, I'm taking it now. The way he describes it is that you were most likely up at the top of the hill asleep in the, in the, in the, uh, the accommodations, I'm guessing. I mean, could have been. I I mean, where I physically was, I'm not sure. I I was probably there mentally. I was, you know, somewhere (laughs) the edge of the galaxy at that point, you know? I mean, well, do you remember like the following day? Do you have any recall of what his demeanor was like after that experience? Did he rush to everyone and go, you're never going to believe this? Uh, did he talk about it at all while he was there with, with all of uh, you? No. Well, not that I know of. I was uh, not in any position to, to track any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I was having my own uh, experience. I mean, I was lost in hyperspace. Yeah. You know, I was having my own experience. I wasn't paying much attention uh, to what was going on around me. I was... Yeah, I was I was off in my own private item. <laughs> well, hey, now I don't. I remember the line for the book, which was, you know, but I don't want to be a bug. <laughs> you know, that uh, was yeah, that was an early. I mean, uh, that was an early part of before we got into the well before we did the experiment at La Chirera, you know, we were lightly stowed on mushrooms most of the time because they had, we'd sort of integrated them into our diet. Right. But there were a few episodes where we got, where we took high doses, very high doses. And, uh, uh, and that's when we began to experience these sounds that you can hear at very high doses inside your head and began to toy with the notion of being able to imitate these sounds, which you can, you can imitate them with your voice. And we had this idea that if we did that, if we did it just right, and we knew from previous experiences with DMT, actually, that if you do it just right, you reach a point where your voice actually, you try and imitate them, you start out singing and trying to get the frequency right. But then there comes a point when your voice just locks on to it and, and it's like it just pours out of you and you can't stop it. And it's like a sound that, you know, no human being should be able to make. You know, we do not have the vocal apparatus for making these sounds, and yet there it is. It's pouring out of you, even to the point where, and this was where the idea that we can create a sound that we can see, Mm. and that, uh, you know, we can actually use a sound to condense a physical object or an object that appears to be physical, but is actually partly made out of mind. I mean, it's a mind-matter fusion. And this was the instructions that we were being given. And uh, this notion about the, I don't want to be an insect, came out of that because the the, the, the themes of insect metamorphosis were 
were all through this, you know, and the and the mantis and the mantis is, you know, downloading this and and insisting, yeah, this is what you have to do. You have to control. You have to metamorphosize yourself. You have to turn yourself into something that is not human or more than human. And you know, you're going to do this psychic operation on yourself. Right. And uh, when you come out of it, you will be. You know, immortal, uh, superconducting. Uh, you will have all knowledge available to you instantly. You'll have paranormal powers, telekinesis, time travel. It's all there. You know, yeah. this is what they were promising. And we thought, well, yeah, okay, we'll go for that. We're you up. know, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this this thing about being transformed happened in one of these high dose. Uh, mushroom trips so early in the experiment experience and out of that out of a couple of those began to coalesce this idea for this experiment that we thought we could do we thought we could get a handle on this we looked at you know ayahuasca uh, we had read about um from Michael Harner, the anthropologist who had spent several years with the Shuar, who at that time were known as the Hivaro in Indians in Ecuador, but now uh, properly called the Shuar. And one of the big influences on our experience at that time was he had published a uh, article in uh, Smithsonian Magazine about his experiences with living with them, and it was called The Sound of Rushing Water. And uh, it was all about um, the Shuar and their use of ayahuasca. And they believed to, they were always on ayahuasca, just like we were always on mushrooms. And in their cosmology, the ayahuasca dimension was reality and ordinary reality was the illusion, right? Mm. And we were kind of getting to that place too. But one of the things that they said they did in that tradition, well, the sound of rushing water was something that you heard on ayahuasca in high doses. And it was not unlike what we were hearing on high doses of mushrooms. You know, I would call it what rushing water, but I can see how they might. I would call it more like, you know, uh, the sound of an electrical circuit shorting out. I mean, that's what it was for us, you know, but definitely a sound and they, the Schwar interpreted this as being, uh, you know, a sign essentially that they were getting close to something, and and then they would produce out of their bodies this this substance, which which we would call you know throw up or puke, but it wasn't really or throw up or puke. It turns out in the ayahuasca tradition there is this substance called phlegm that they produce out of their bodies. And the, the uh, Schwar use this thing um, to, um, uh, they use it like a scrying mirror. They actually spread it on the ground and you can look into it and you can see the future and you can see far away places and you can see, you know, what to do about, you know, uh, who stole your girlfriend or 
all of these things, you know, who stole something from, from you, you can see a person's illness and how to treat it. All of those things were properties of this magical physical substance. And on DMT, Terence had had experiences similar to this back in Nepal several months before uh, we come to La Chirera when he had smoked a large amount of DMT and had this uh, with this uh, scrawny English girl that he was hanging out with at that time. And they had, you know, this this sexual experience where they basically melted together and then they melted. Wow. <laughs> they were both on DMT and they melted into this violet fluid or they felt that this 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 violetish iridescent liquid was was boiling out of their pores and so we thought well you know I mean, you have to understand if it's not obvious to your audience by this time, you know, our our cognitive categories here were breaking down and, and we're pretty damn loose at this point what we thought aha you know the schwar uh phlegm the schwar magic substance and the violet psychofluid uh that we produced and that you could sense was just about to break out in these high mushroom trips you know that's the same thing you know that that's what it is it's some kind of a biophysical substance that is made out of your mind uh essentially but you can see it it's it's physical it's it's physical and immaterial and psychic uh, as well it's a mind matter uh blend you know and this is what we were speculating you know and not so much speculating as being told by the teaching by the teacher, you know, who's saying, yes, this is it. You know, I'm just laying it down for you guys. This is what's going on. Well, well, when you talk about the, the, the you know, the biofluid stuff, when, when we're talking about that, I mean, you can certainly perceive it in the state, shall we say, but what about but not outside the state? Well, ah, that was the thing that yeah. was, that became the whole thing. How can we nail this down? and actually come back with a physical evidence, something you can hold in your hand. Right. Give me a vial of this stuff. Or right. point to right and, and give it to you or somebody else and say, here, see, yeah. I told you. You know, this became the whole thing was that we wanted to create a, an entity that was made of this stuff, which we call translinguistic matter for lack of a better term, we had the idea that it was actually a, a visible substance that was made out of language. And uh, if you look at various traditions, including the Christian tradition, this is not such a, you know, other people have had this idea, you know, the the in in Christianity, the whole you know the word was made flesh, and the flesh was God, and the, you know, and that's what it was. Or sometimes you see uh, depictions of Christ with a sword coming out of his mouth, you know, and there's scripture to the effect that you know my word is like a blade, my word is like a sword. So that was a metaphor, but we suspected that maybe they were 
getting at something that was more than a metaphor. And so we came up with this notion that what this was, was what we call translinguistic matter, which was, which was this postulated substance made partly out of mind and partly out of bodily fluids, basically. And that we could create this. And the trick was, uh, how to fix it, right? How to, how to stabilize it in some way so that when we were not on the mushrooms, when we were after the trip, right. had something. We had a glass full of it. We had something, you know, that could physically be pointed to. And if you look back into tradition, this is exactly what the alchemists were trying to do. I mean, the alchemists used different symbolism uh, and they had a different you know, conceptual framework, but basically this is what they were trying to do. It had nothing to do with transforming lead into gold. That was, that was a smokescreen. What it had to do with was about creating an object uh, out of your own mind, essentially. And, and Jung will say, well, no, it was a, you know, it was a projection of an inner psychic process of individuation, as he calls it, onto matter. It was just using matter as a uh, symbolic vehicle of this. But I think not. I think that that was partly it. But I think the alchemists had an, an intuition that you could go for this. And there's plenty of evidence that they knew about mushrooms uh, and other tryptamine-containing plants. And I think that's what they were trying for. And I think some of them may have succeeded, you know? I mean, there's really no way to know. Yeah. But... Um, well, I mean, I, I, what I find interesting about that is, you know, we come back to, like, what the focus of this show is most of the time, which is the paranormal. And, and it, it, it comes down to me to the same thing. I'm seeing this tangent of we're talking about let's just let's just put it in the alien category i mean we're i've witnessed long discussions about people who experience alien encounters and can you set a camera up in your room or can you take a sample off the floor can you cut the carpet where they walked and get uh mm -hmm. some sort of cellular dna off of this and mm -hmm. and you know and and i've i've i mean i was as guilty as anyone else uh back in the 80s probably of Saying, yeah, it's got to be. I mean, if it's that physical, we've got to be able to get some sort of proof of it. And the longer that I stayed around in this, I saw nobody had it. Nobody could get their hands on it. And the fact of the matter is, is we still don't have our hands on it. Right. And so I've got to look at that and go, well, it's real when it's there, but how long it's, can it stay real? Yeah. Well, it's it's because it's because it evaporates. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, essentially, and you've got nothing in the end. Right. But, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's halfway into this reality and halfway not. Uh -huh. And so it's like, you know, if you don't grab it by the throat and drag it kicking and screaming <laughs> right. into this reality, it's going to go back down the wormhole, you right. know, and it's lost and you know it was there. And this is exactly what we were trying to do with La Chirera. We were trying to, you know, we could see this stuff, we could produce it, and we thought we've got to somehow fix it. And so we turned to alchemy because we were both dyed in the wool Jungians anyway. I mean, if you've ever read Psychology and Alchemy by C.G. Jung, this is the 
this is a key uh, reference work for this whole thing. And I strongly urge your readers to look at it because it's almost a recipe book, you know, for doing this. It's a very interesting book. But the alchemists had this figured out or they if they didn't have it figured out they were they were awfully close they were really focused in on it and a lot of what alchemy is about in the process of doing this 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 chemical transformation of the self has to do with what they call fixing the mercury right it's all about they're trying to make the philosopher's stone and there are several stages and uh, mercury, which is mercurial, right? Hard to nail down. It keeps scattering away from you, which is why it's a symbol of this uh, idea. And a lot of what alchemical practice is, is to fix the mercury. And there are various processes for doing that so that it can't get away, essentially cage it into a, a uh, confined uh, matrix, a confined boundary or something like that, mm. so that, you know, you've got it. You've got it like an, an animal in a cage, essentially. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and so we applied that idea. We came up with a series of steps that we thought that we were being told, essentially, if you do this, if you, if you, take a big dose of mushrooms and you hear this sound and you imitate it in the right time. And you, you can, you can essentially bond this thing into your own DNA, Mm. you know, and then you can externalize it as a symbiosis between a mushroom, yourself and this, this substance, whatever it is. And you'll be able to see this thing and it will be, you will be able to both see it and be it at the same time. You know, it will be mind externalized and visible outside the body. Well, you know, call me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, now here's the question. How many people over the years since, since all this have you come across who said, you know, Dennis, I did that. And, uh, and there it was. Not a one. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Wow, really? Not a one. No, because because nobody has done it. But if you look, as far as I know, but if you look back through history, uh, many people have tried and many people have had these similar ideas. And I don't think anybody's done it, you know. Mm. Uh, And the reason I don't is because, you know, one of the consequences uh, of doing that that we predicted was that you would have this object that would essentially be able to do anything you could imagine. Yeah. Right. Anything you could imagine. You want to take a shower and you hold it up and water comes out or, you know, you want to travel across the galaxy in the blink of an eye. You think about it and it happens. You know, it is totally responsible to the human imagination. You connect with it by telepathy and it's basically the object at the end of time. And it's the philosopher's stone. It's the flying saucer. It's the time machine. It's all of these things that, you know, the human spirit imagines uh, are possible that we have that it's this archetype of the incomprehensible and all powerful artifact. 
you know, that we create. And don't you think essentially that's what the flying saucer is? It's not a machine that travels in space. No, no, no. no. That's, that's not something we. Uh, that's that's not something that uh, at least yeah. on this show that we put a lot of of credence in. I mean, I certainly, you know, there there's there's been this thing lately of I think the undercurrent in some episodes that we've done lately is you know what is it, which is what we're still asking is what is it, but what is it in the sense of how do we even define what people experience as part of what the enigmatic other is right and well, so it, this becomes it, a, com- a completely uh I, I mean to me i look at it and i say this is probably an effort and futility because how are we going to define this thing it's indefinable it's not the sort of thing you can hold in your hand as exactly and exactly but that doesn't say anything about what real means. I mean, that's that to me has been the biggest lesson learned in my life over this stuff is what, what real means. I mean, that's my question for Ah. you now is, is living, living in the world you have, uh, (laughs) and, and, and experiencing all that you have both with your brother and without him. What do you think your life would have been? I mean, certainly a lot less exciting, put it to you that way, but what do you think your life? (laughs) Probably a lot more lucrative. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what, what do you what do you think that you I mean let's forget Dr. McKenna for a second. What would Dennis have been like had he never found this stuff? What would what would and what is Dennis like that that he has had these experiences and how does how does he view the world now differently from the person that he was before? Well, well if I'd never found if I had never gone on this quest, you know, um, I probably would have uh, gone somewhere. I mean, I probably would be a fair, I probably would have gone into science, maybe mm-hmm. cosmology or physics. I was drawn to those things. I really wanted to be an astrophysicist when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have, uh, led a more boring and, and mundane life, but ho- hopefully not a, not a useless life, you know? Right. Um, so hopefully it wouldn't have turned out too badly. Do you view reality completely? I mean, has this ever made it very hard for you to relate to other people just because the relationships with these plants that you've had over so many years? I mean, to me, it's got to make you look at reality in a completely different manner than most people that you meet. Well, it does. I mean, it makes you look at it in a different matter, uh, different uh, way. Although I'm fortunate because now, I mean, I have a hard time – maybe relating people that have never had a psychedelic experience and who have no idea what I'm talking about. But there are a lot of people around who have had similar experiences now. And so that's my community. Those are the people, at least we can talk about this stuff. Uh, I don't think any of us understand what is really going on, you know, but we can talk about it and we can say, yeah, there's, there's some weird stuff out there and something's going on. And, and mostly, I mean, oddly, uh, you know, in, in me, in the, in the long-term effect it's had on me, it's made me, 
a lot more cognizant of how little we know, how little I know, mm. how little anyone knows. Right. Uh, you know, we like to think that we kind of have it all figured out and, you know, our science is, you know, pretty good and we've got some pretty elegant models for the way the world works, the way that, you know, physics works and all that, you know, and they're just toys. I mean, they don't even come close, yeah. you know, uh, to how weird it is. I mean, you don't even have to have these experiences to look around you and look at the universe and look at the fact that we're here. Yeah. I mean, the very fact that we're just even here is so bloody improbable. Yeah. You know, and you have to say, Jesus, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. what is going on? Well, what that, is that, really going on? That's, you know? that's totally, I mean, you totally hit the nail on the head for, you know, the, the, the way we've kind of, I mean, throughout all our discussions with everyone from yourself to Jacques Vallée to all the host of, of guests we've had on the show. It's like, that's been a, a constant that, you know, in our private conversations, Jeremy and I are always saying, what all this stuff means? What does the paranormal mean? What is a psychedelic? Who is experience? writing this stuff? Yeah, like, like, what, what is this? Like, what is going on? And and yeah. in the end, it's like Jeremy said uh, the the thing that's become kind of my go to argument for all this is like, you know, we don't even know what the hell we are yet, and we're trying to figure out this other stuff, um, yeah, which exactly. isn't dissimilar from what your brother said. You know, I remember him saying something like, you know. Um, you have to keep in mind we're we're a little more than evolved monkeys and we're trying to figure out the nature of the universe and how absurd is that? How and he's right. You know, I mean, yeah. So that that's kind of in some ways, I mean, I don't say, I mean, it's like the answer is that nobody knows the answer, you know, yeah. and there may not be an answer and it may just be, that well this is the way it is you know yeah. and but that's not very satisfying to a lot of people i mean they want answers and people are uncomfortable with uh you know with with cognitive dissonance and this situation this is why people turn to religion i think yeah basically i mean i'm pretty much you know i don't have much use for religion because i think what what it is is simple answers for simple people mm-hmm. You know, they want they want to be told what is going on and they they can't comprehend it. They want to they want a simple story. And so they turn to religion and it's satisfying. But, you know, if they ever, you know, spend any real actual time thinking about it or if they accidentally or deliberately happen to stumble on like a psychedelic experience, it completely demolishes their ontological foundations, you know? I mean, they have no idea what to think. That's why these substances have always been persecuted and feared and mm-hmm. and prohibited and reviled and in every way repressed because people don't want to admit that, in fact, we haven't got a clue, you know, and that is... I mean, ultimately, it's not very satisfying. I don't know what to tell you, you know. I mean, at, at the end, you say, well, we don't know very much. In fact, at the end, we don't know anything, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean it's That's true. not very satisfying. That's not what the folks want to hear, yeah. but that's yeah. the truth. Yeah, it is the truth. I mean, it, you know, the, the longer that I do this show and the more people that we talk to and, 
and you know, our, our last guest that we had on was a guy talking about essentially a paranormal hotspot where they, there's all sorts of stuff going on from UFOs to ghosts to Bigfoot. I mean, it's all within a, a, a you know, a central area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so much of this stuff, I mean, there's this perceptual element to it. There's probably some kind of environmental physiology going on, interaction between the, 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 the brain versus the environment versus undercurrents of reality that we know nothing about. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, that's been something we, we've talked a lot about on this show, which is nature of uh, you know, anti-structural relationships, anti-structural lives. Uh, marginality, all of these things kind of being an undercurrent to, to all of these very strange things. I mean, I think, I mean, I can say this, you know, in a non-offensive way, but it doesn't get much more marginal for an outsider to hear of Terrence's UFO experience and him to say, well, of course, Terrence, you were high. And well, right. Right. And that's like, that's the easy answer. That's the easy way out. Sure. But it doesn't when you, when you look back at the number that, of things that come up within all of this and the tiebacks to right. a psychedelic experience or the, or the compound or whatever, you know, I find that to be the best lead to me is always well, going to well, be back to this. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, that is so it's so easily dismissed. Right. It, as though that is an explanation. You were high. Yeah. Right. So anything you experienced when you were high doesn't matter. We can automatically take that off the table because you were high. Well, I'm here to tell you, my friend, that we're all high all of the time (laughs) because our brains synthesize and construct reality. They construct the hallucination that we live in that we have chosen to call reality. And this is not this is not uh, gospel or religion. This is neurophysiology. Yeah. You know, we know that the that we experience the the world out there, whatever it is, filtered through the 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 sensory neural interface, and the sensory neural interface takes this raw data, this electromagnetic information, and all kinds of information, and uh, you know, puts it into the hopper and synthesizes it into a world, uh, a perception of reality that we can comfortably live in and that makes sense and it enables us to, you know, navigate so we don't go walking off cliffs or stepping in front of buses or stuff. But it's a hallucination. And we are always high because. Uh, you know, this is all mediated by neurotransmitters in our brain. Well, you know what neurotransmitters are? They're drugs, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we are made of drugs, yeah. and that's why these drugs work. And this is why, this is what I tell people. So the argument that you're high and therefore it can't be trusted. I mean, that may be true, but then anything you experience can't be trusted because you're high right. all the time, and we're always high, and that's we're biochemical engines that that run on drugs. I'm sorry. Yeah. So forget the drug-free America ain't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, do, I mean, what, 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 what I remember on this show was uh, uh, our 19th episode. We had a, a gentleman. He was, he's one of our listeners. I mean, his name is Brandon. And um, he had gone to the Amazon for his ayahuasca. 
while he was there, and if I'm remembering this right, uh, maybe he'll uh, jump on the message board and remind me, but <laughs> it was a group of people, and one of them was blind. He was a blind man. Uh-huh. And uh, I, one, I think one of the things that we asked him was, was there any cohesiveness across the group as to what was seen? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, most of the time, no, but mm-hmm. there was a night where I think uh, a girl he had met there that was in the group kind of got him up off the cot and said, you've got to see this. And they walk outside and the jungle that was there didn't look like any jungle they'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And it was ethereal looking, if I remember correctly. And even the blind man could see it. Even the blind man can see it. And they all, they all stood there um, saying, we're seeing this. This is here. What is this? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you couple that stuff with Dr. Strassman's stuff with uh, the McKenna brothers, you put all this stuff together right? and you, you kind of get the picture that now there's more going on here than you're high. You know, I I still, I still like your analogy of, you know, what if we're like a radio tuner that's tuning to different things and given the right dose per weight, um, you know, per environment or whatever, that it's likely that everyone could end up seeing the same thing. Um, well, th- yeah, this happens. I mean, this this is not uncommon in these group sessions. This is uh, this is a common theme with ayahuasca and mushrooms. I might add. I mean, I've had it many times with ayahuasca, a few times with mushrooms, where mm-hmm. you uh, are definitely on the same wavelength. You can. Uh, you know, you know, you're seeing the same thing because you can narrate it to each other, and yeah, yeah, independently, yeah. which to me is amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just like, okay, what what are we seeing? I mean, and what is that place? And you know, I, I mean, yeah. to me, I mean, when you talk about this whole notion of bringing something out, I remember Terrence talking about what if you could bring one of the tykes out of a DMT experience. Um, you know, this would end all conversation at that moment, you know, it would, it and, would and, absolutely. And that's the do thing that. That, that you look at, you say, and, and of course me being only very like a one timer, uh, you know, I look at that and I say, uh, that to me is like bringing the Maserati out of one of my dreams as a kid. Like do I wake <laughs> up and the Maserati is next to the bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, how do you, it, it, it's just, it seems as, as distant as that to me. Yeah. And that, that was exactly, that was exactly what we were trying to do. We were trying to, Hey, to create the, uh, you know, the hyperspatial Maserati, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the ultimate artifact yeah. that could do whatever you could imagine, whatever you could ask of it, it would do. Because it was you, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, it was you, but with the ability to actually manifest in in 3D space, whatever you asked of it, because in a sense, it was 3D space. It was all of space time condensed down into the stone, the philosopher's stone that you could actually hold in our hand, in your hand. And, and we you know, even applied this metaphor at La Chirera that, you know, if we succeed, you know, we will, we will end up, if we succeed in what we think we can do, we will end up with a jewel like object. It will be a disc. It will be, 
about the size of, uh, you know, maybe a, a silver dollar, maybe a little large than that. It will be transparent. It will be black, in fact. Mm. And you'll be able to look into it. And the first thing you'll see is the Milky Way galaxy. And it won't be an image of the Milky Way galaxy. It will be the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> and then you can go from there. <laughs> the question is where? Like well, touch screen, yeah. right? I mean, you yeah. touch a certain point and there you are. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, uh, so it will be the uh, the iPad of the, uh, the end of time. <laughs> yes. Yes. Wow, Terrence would love that. Uh, well... I mean, as far as as the book uh, that that you're going to be writing, because we're not even going to talk about this not happening. Um, the book that you're going to write here, <laughs> yeah. What do you think will be, uh, b- besides it being from your perspective and and your experiences uh, with your brother in all these places, all these different experiences? Uh, what do you think that people are going to get from it that they're wanting? Uh, for because Terrence was such an open guy about his experiences, I think the only thing that I ever hear about him, uh, even from people who love listening to him speak, is he liked to weave it into a narrative story that that really played out in a in a in an understandable way, which is always the way you listen to him speak, and he's telling this narrative just so you can get your head around the yes. concepts are so vast that he's trying to convey. Right. That that this is what happens. I mean, when you're writing this book, are you? I mean, you're, of course, I'm sure you're going to go back to childhood and about how you guys grew up, and you know how you even either of you even got into uh, this stuff, which is going to be the part of the book that I want to read the most is your discoveries of this stuff. But right, um, what do you think people are are thirsting for the most? That you're going to. Well, I'm not in. sure. I'm not sure. Um, you know that because I haven't written it, and and of course I have ideas about what it's going to cover. You know, but I haven't even, other than in my head, I haven't even outlined it. Right. But I mean, uh, some of it's going to be personal, obviously, and I think that I mean it can't not be personal. Yeah, you know, we were brothers. We lived our lives together, and. And, you know, and all the people that we've been entangled with over the years, lovers, spouses, children, all that. But it's not going to be I, – I don't know. I don't know what the audience wants exactly. It's not, it's not really going to be this, you know, minute, sordid, you know, dissection of our fucked up lives. <laughs> right. I mean, right. we're no better than other people. Sure, we were fucked up. We were not – we were not, you know, we're not perfect beings, not by a long shot. We're in on that level. We're, I mean, I don't make any claims to enlightenment or any of that. Right. I think, I mean, I'm as confused as ever. I just, mm. if I know anything, I know that I'm confused and, and pretty ignorant. So it'll be, but it will be a, a personal account uh, of, of growing up and kind of the sequence that led us to these odd interests and, and the consequences of that. Yeah. And uh, a lot about uh, what led us to go to La Chirera and what happened at La Chirera, you know, but in fact, most of our lives have been lived since La Chirera, right. you know, and in, 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 
every respect, you know, but La Chirera has haunted us ever since. That experience has haunted us ever since. And everything that we've done has been in some way in response to that, to either try to accept it and come to terms with it or at times reject it and deny it and and just try to live a normal life and you know <laughs> uh, i don't know or, or you know uh, 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 achieve uh, certain uh, acceptance among our peers and that's partly why it we felt it was important to make mushrooms available to lots of people so they they too could have these experiences <laughs> You know, so it's going to be partly personal, uh, partly speculative, you know, exploring these ideas, uh, partly about, you know, here's how I looked at it back then and here's how I look at it now. Yeah. It's going to be all of those things, that you know, and more. I can't really tell you because I haven't written it. And, yeah. and that's, and I want to do a good job and I want to have enough time to actually, uh, you know, grapple with this stuff. I mean, there'll be plenty of, of personal stuff, family uh, connections, and hopefully my relatives will consent to talk to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although they may not after, you know, but if that's the case, so be it, you know, then I'll just make something up, but yeah. <laughs> it's better that they talk to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, no, actually that's a flippant statement. I'm not, I'm really not going to make stuff up. You yeah. know, I may go lightly on some, some of the personal side of things and that may disappoint people, but this isn't a Hollywood expose, you know, no, this is no. pretty much more cerebral kind of thing. I mean, I want to write an honest book, um, definitely from my own point of view. And I think people deserve that. I don't really want to go around destroying people's lives. I mean, you know, <laughs> right. uh, you don't live as long as I have without making some enemies. And, uh, uh, yeah. you know, and Terrence had plenty of enemies and I suppose I do too. And, uh, you know, and my, it's not about any of that. I mean, I'm a pretty laid back guy. I've, I've had conflicts with people, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of conflicts over the, the fallout from Terrence's death and all that. Um, and I may discuss that to some extent, but it's not to get revenge on people. I mean, I've, you gotta, you gotta learn to drop all that baggage, you know, yeah. um, especially in the, in the light of, of this, you know, what we think we know. I mean, if it makes us so petty and focused on, you know, things that basically don't matter, then we haven't learned anything. Well, that's just it. I mean, there's so much conflict that can erupt out of all of this stuff that, yeah. you know, I, I mean, sooner or later, you've judged, you got to just turn your back on it and focus on what the question is. You yeah, know? you do. So, so it'll be personal and, and, you know, for me, it's going to be an exegesis in some sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I cannot write this book without, uh, having to come to terms uh, with my own relationship with these ideas and with my brother, my relationship with my brother right. and all of that and all of the, 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 you know, consequences of 
being so closely allied with such a figure, you know, yeah, and yeah, and it wasn't just, you know, I mean, we were we were co-conspirators in every sense, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. People say, well, it's Terence's ideas and Terence this, Terence that, mm-hmm. and I don't have a problem with that. He chose to be very much more public than I did. I consciously chose to not be so public. So, you know, but on the other hand, I did originate a lot of these ideas and he'd be the first to tell you that, you know? And so this is my chance to not to take credit, maybe to share credit, maybe to say just basically, this is how I see it. I went through these experiences and this is my story, you know? Yeah. That's all. That's all it really is. Yeah. Well, um, before I let you go, I, I, you know, this is something that I've, I've kind of always wondered about and knowing the experiences that both of you guys had when, when, and this is hard to ask because, you know, when parents found out that his health was in trouble, was he surprised? Was he, uh, was he devastated? I mean, you as his brother had to have been. Because I know how anyone would be about their brother, you know, yeah, or their yeah. dad or their mom or whoever. Right. But was he like, well, you know, that's how it is. He so strikes me just by listening to him. I didn't know the man from Adam, but I feel like I do. It's just one of those things. Mm-hmm. That, People know, do. People you, do. You know, I, I feel like he would be the kind of guy who would say, this is how it is. And okay. But what was it really like that for him? Was he... <laughs> Was he? Well, uh, I mean, I don't know. I just i I look at that and I go. I, I remember this statement he said, which was, "I never won anything in my life, and I win this." Mm-hmm. It's just such. It seems so expected to me that that someone like him would get cheated because <laughs> that's how I feel about that. It, it's just another one of those things that you know. Yeah. Here's this. You know, I mean, thank God you're still around, you know, and, and we've mm-hmm. got all of all of what you've experienced and in, in, in the wellspring that you are of all this stuff. And and I thoroughly always enjoy our conversations immensely. Um, I have to say, so do I. I, I, mean, I have a real good time. It's it's on this you know, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I just always wonder, like, what what was going on for him in that way or what did you get from that? Uh, well, I, I can I tell you. I mean, this this we could go on for another hour about oh, just sure, this topic. Yeah. It's it's complicated, and I'm not sure that I completely understand it because mm. you know nobody has ever handed me a death sentence. Yeah, and that's essentially what happened. I mean, when you're told you have glioblastoma. I mean, you can do everything you want, all the experimental treatments and whatever, but basically it's over, you know? I mean, it's 98% mortality. So here he is in 1999, you know, we're on the cusp of 2000. Here's a man whose whole life has become centered around 2012. Right. And it becomes clear that he's, you know, 98% chance he's not going to see it. That's got to be an incredible blow uh, to him or certainly sobering. And I think it was. And it complicated things a lot for us, um, for he and I as a brother. I mean, it brought us together, really. 
because over for the last for the few years previous to that for complicated reasons which i won't go into right now but i may discuss in the book in some in some extent but for complicated reasons well you know we're brothers right and so brothers fight right sure and we had had some conflicts and we had had some differing opinions about things related to people he related to and so on. Uh, and, and so we had some conflicts and I was, I was pissed off at him basically because he was such an asshole, you know, (laughs) in, in some ways. And, but as soon as I heard that he had cancer, it's like all that went away and it was like I was on the plane to Hawaii the next day, and I was there for him. I think I was really, really there for him up until the moment he died. Yeah. And in some ways, he welcomed that, and he knew that I was there for him. In other ways, he resented that, oh. you know, because the fact is that was a – I mean, every time he saw me, every time <laughs> – Every time he looked around, you know, it was a reminder that, you know, that I mean, Dennis is here because you're dying, right? Yeah. And uh, that's got to be tough. Yeah. And uh, But we had some good, you know, bonding during that time and yeah. some healing during that time. And it all went back in some ways to La Chirera mm-hmm. because I said, well, you know, I said, you know, when this happened, as soon as I got to La Chira, I said, you know, I don't know what's happening, but I think that this is part of the, our story. Yeah. A- and that what we're looking at here is the next turn of this spiral. Yeah. And, you know, if we're a helical spiral or a fractal, you know, implosion or whatever, uh, I mean, our positions are reversed, right? Yeah. Now you get to go. Last time I got to go. Now this time you get to go and you get to go for real. And not that the, you know, psychotic break wasn't real, but this time you're crossing the the threshold into real hyperspace and you're not coming back. So what is the job? What are, what is our task? And, I, I put it to him this way. I said, our task in, in some ways is to do what we said we were going to do at La Chirera, yeah. you know, except that you're the subject and I'm the, I'm the, the doctor yeah. pulling the strings. And we have got to get to a place where we can do this shamanic work and, uh, we can use these plants, we can use these substances to uh, to build the starship, which is what we were trying to do, or to create the stone. This time you're going to be the, the one on the operating table, as it were, literally and figuratively. Right. And at the end of the day, you know, you're either going to get cured and you'll go on with your life, or if you don't get cured you'll be ready, you know, to take this journey, to take this trip. You'll be, you will be the starship. You'll be able to, you know, sit in that control and take the reins and just sail off. And it will be very, uh, it will be painless and it will be joyous. And uh, we tried real hard 
to do that. And I will not narrate that because yeah. we, we tried real hard. We did a lot of shamanic work in that summer in Hawaii, the summer of 1999. And, uh, you know, and uh, did we succeed? I have no idea. I mean, at the time, it felt like we didn't. You know, it felt like, although I laid all this out for him, it felt like he wasn't really very accepting or very ready to to do that. And uh, but nevertheless, we went ahead. And uh, did it work? I have no idea. I mean, I, I mean, did he die in a state of terror? I don't think that. I no, did. I can't imagine that. Yeah. Peace. I don't know. I don't know because mm. he couldn't speak, you know, for the path, for the last uh, month of his life. He had no way to speak. He was paralyzed. Uh, I mean, I think he could hear me. I know he could hear me. Um, and I talked and, uh, but he could not respond. Wow. It's just hard to say, Jeff. You yeah, know, sure. one of the most wrenching experiences of my, of my life. Yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, and so I don't really know. I don't really know. But I do feel this. I feel like for one thing, I feel like, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I mean, we were so close. In some ways, we were left and right brains to each other. So when he left, I mean, I was the left brain and he was the right brain. You know, I was right. the analytical <laughs> scientific one and he was the, the intuitive, you know, philosopher. Uh, mm -hmm wild man and, and <laughs> yeah. you know and, but we were very complimentary and almost we functioned almost in that way and uh and so you know when he was gone it was like having half your brain ripped out really yeah, yeah. for a long time and but but uh, you know it's been 10 years since then right. and i feel like a number of things have happened there there's been a lot of healing uh, I have forgiven him for many things, and I hope he's forgiven me. And, you know, I told him that before he died. Yeah. And uh, I've had some very good dreams, you know, about him. And uh, where not particularly psychic or paranormal, but actually normal dreams in which yeah. he was right there and he was very present. And I was getting the message that, it's okay. You know, it's all right. Don't worry. Yeah. That and the fact that he has achieved this really odd immortality, you know, on the net, uh, the yeah. mortality of his ideas, the, the personal connection that people feel to him. Um, it's really surprising and it's good. I mean, I feel, I feel like it's good. Uh, you know, because people do feel it. So in some sense, he's never left, you know, you never really, I mean, I don't know what happens. I don't know if there's an afterlife or, you know, any of that. I don't think anyone who's honest can really say, uh, I mean, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but I can, I can say this. People do live on mm -hmm. in the memories of their, the people that were close to them. I mean, if, yeah. There's, there certainly is that kind of afterlife. Yeah. If I want to talk to Terrence, he's right there. Yeah. All yeah. the time, yeah. you know, 
all I have to do is <laughs> bring him online and there right. he is. Yeah. If I had to create a visual for the whole scenario, it would be this table with thousands of books on them that have been left, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, for cowards like me who won't do that sort of thing and, and that, that both of you have done. And, uh, and here's this stack of books that's going to take a millennia to get through. I mean, there's just so much that I think both of you have, have, have brought to light or brought to people's awareness even. I, I think it's going to be decades. I mean, it's going to be decades before this stuff is really understood. And then we'll always go back and go, oh, well, there it is. Yeah, maybe yeah. these guys were onto something. Yeah, yeah. It, will, it will be decades. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, I mean, I'm we'll be long gone. You know? I mean, I think that that's the thing is, is uh, it, it's going to take a while to parse all this stuff out. But, I mean, certainly the threads being pulled on, I think, are the right ones for for at least yeah. some of this stuff. So, um yeah. I mean, that that's the other thing with the, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, when I look inside my heart and think about writing this book, I do not feel anything negative coming from the Terrence yeah. avatar or whatever. In mm-hmm. fact, I feel a great affirmation. I feel that he's behind this. He would like to see this happen. Uh, he doesn't have a problem with it. In fact, you know, he supports it and mm-hmm. you know, he'd make his pledge if he could. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah no doubt. But he wants to see this. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I just feel that in my heart. Now, you know, I may be deluded, but that's what I feel. No, I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, uh, that's a great way to look at it. And, and certainly, uh, since we're going to wrap this up, um, uh, there is a link on our homepage. Wonderful. of this and this is where you can go to make this thing happen and uh and and i think uh you know as as strongly as we've talked about the mckenna brothers on this show and all the work that they've done over the years and, and all the information that's been provided the, the stuff like i said that will be probably being parsed out for decades to come this is yet another chapter of those that i think will be placed on that table and so the way i look at it, it it's a crime if this doesn't happen. And so I'm not going to talk about it in that sense. Uh, and, and I think anybody that listens to this show knows how much that, um, that, that we think of, of you and your brother and how often we refer to your show and, and, and Terrence's in lectures and all that sort of thing. So I think our audience is going to support this a lot. And, uh, and I beg you guys to just whatever you can give. I know, you know, the economy is not in the best shape and everybody is hurting here, but yeah, uh, this to me is, is really important stuff. I mean, this is, uh, no. And I, I would, I would say that, you know, to people, if, if you can afford it, then, then make a pledge at whatever level and, and know that you'll get something back. This is not a donation. This is a, this is uh you know, an investment, if you will. Yeah. And if you can't afford it, then don't don't beat yourself up about it and and don't make don't uh hurt yourself in order to make that that you can do a lot for this by just spreading the word yeah you know absolutely. that is really important like you're doing so you all know? of you listeners you all got facebook pages cuz i've seen them oh yeah so <laughs> go ahead guys and uh and the links on our page and get that sucker up yeah. And, okay. Uh, Sounds and, good. And let's get this thing rolling. Uh, for, okay. For Doctor. And and you know, remember, I'm watching the numbers. I can track it. There you go. There you <laughs> Very go. Very tightly. So so if you guys don't get on it, I'll come back and harangue you. 
you know? <laughs> wow. Now there's a pretty picture. Yeah, really? Dr. McKenna's coming after us with hatchets. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> well, Dr. McKenna, I sincerely appreciate you coming on and, uh, and I hope we can, we can help out a lot in this. Uh, okay. So all, anyway, all the best to you and same to you and, uh, and your, your partner in crime and, yes. and your audience, you <laughs> yes. know, this is Chris Balzano and you're listening to Paratopia. So the Jeff. So the Jer. Uh, that was quite, quite. Uh, dare I say, quite the trip? Can I say that without <laughs> being too funny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was absolutely. Got a little emotional there at the end. Yeah, yeah. Well, like you said, this was you know part of this was a very difficult time, which I can imagine it would be. Um. So, you know, I, I, I think that's a real, um, uh, I think the whole conversation is a real, you know, free form, great way to kind of not, not only get an idea of what would be in the book that he's going to write, but, um, just kind of get to know the, the, the man a little bit, which is great. You know, I think that was, that was fantastic. Had a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear, um, you know, specific things like about the praying mantis, you know, schoolmaster in charge. Yeah, how about that? Um, because we've heard this in alien abduction lore. Yeah. And certainly David Huggins, whose artwork is this sort of outlandish, you know, <laughs> bunch of alien art. Yeah. Um, talks about this. And and I know David, and he doesn't read UFO books. He doesn't, I mean, he didn't even really know who Whitley Strieber was. He didn't know who Billy Meyer was. He didn't know. Mm. He doesn't know. You know what I mean? So he just draws his stuff and you say, well, gee, where does it come from? I don't know. Where does it come from? I mean, that's yeah. in there. He's got that character in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you uh, do with that? I don't know. See, this is what kind of boggles the mind to me about all of that. And um, I don't I don't know. I, and I, I think I brought up in the discussion, I can't remember, but, you know, uh, something along the lines of, what I've said on the show a couple of times about what if this whole thing starts somehow in the mind or something like the mind and then ends up staring at you in the floor, that sort of thing. And, uh, and of course Dennis said to me, if it wasn't in the show, it was in our pre-chat. Um, you know, that's the $64,000 question is how would it do that? Why would it do that? I think you might've gotten into that a little bit with our you know, last week's episode, uh, talking about you know being perceived and therefore manifesting based on the perception, that sort of thing. Yeah. So yeah, well, there's another thing that we talked about privately that you just reminded me to bring up, which is Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. Um, famously uh, left the stage when he was, you know, I think he was playing Hamlet in Hamlet, and. Um, he's such an actor who's in the moment that when it came time to see the ghost, he saw the ghost of his actual dead father. And it was hmm. so real to him that he just walked out. Like he walked off the stage in the middle of the scene, got into a cab, went home and never took to the stage again. 
Uh, yeah. And this is true. I mean, he's admitted this in an interview. It's not like some tall tale. So I put that together with, a, you know, to harken back again to the mouse coming out of my neck and scampering across my head and there jumping and dissolving into thin air because I was so obsessed with this uh, for an entire day mm-hmm. and it bled over into my dreams that it actually came out of my dreams and manifested before me. So you take something like, like that um, and, and what is it? I mean, is it a... Is, is it a, a momentary schizophrenic burp? And if you say <laughs> yeah. that, then what is that? You know, what does that mean? What is a schizophrenic? What is somebody who can project imaginary people and voices and things like that that are so real to them uh, that, you know, you're sitting on a train and they're they're babbling to them. Right. And, right. You know, ignoring you. I mean, what, <laughs> what is that? What are we doing? <laughs> I don't know. It's probably something not unlike the uh, psychedelic violet biofluid. That was talked about uh, during the interview, that same sort of thing. You can't get your hands on it, but it's certainly perceivable at the time. It's tactile. You can feel it. You can run it through your hands. You can gaze into it, but yet it's like it, it certainly exists in the moment, and it exists in that, you know, if you want to call a psychedelic experience a momentary you know, thing, although they can last for hours, I mean a momentary thing doesn't seem so far removed from you know the mouse jumping out of your neck it's so momentary it's so fleeting yet it's real but yet it's not it's there in the moment but after you get your bearings and you sit up and you look it's not there anymore but something like uh, that liquid you're talking about i mean it's interesting that that's something that multiple people will see i mean they've got a whole cultural yeah right thing based on that uh so it's not just some guy reporting it it's no everyone can sort of access it if they do the right the right sequence of things. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I I mean, it's, you know, there is something right there that, that ought to be telling science, at least in my opinion, ought to be telling science that there's either one or two options here. Either we are being tuned like a radio to perceive things that aren't there in, in normal States, uh, but is somehow in existence, um, in this altered state or B there is some amazing artifacts in our brains that, are similar despite being different people with different life experiences and different biochemistry. And yet we can perceive the same thing in an altered state. Uh, Everybody gets the same, they get on the same wavelength and the same chemicals released that induces the same hallucination, which even seems more far fetched to me than it being real in some alternate sense. Um, you know that's that that to me is just uh, a fascinating thing, and you see that across the board. You see that in Doctor Strassman's stuff. You see that with Brandon's uh, account with the the jungle and everybody seeing the same thing, and even the blind man saw it. So, I mean, what does that mean? Um, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, there's something there, and and I think by far that to me, if you if you asked me tomorrow what is the big thing that we've kind of hit on looking at our end of this thing which is this phenomena that relates loosely to ufology i suppose what would be the one thing that's been the most enticing and the most compelling the most interesting uh you know it would have to be a toss-up between george hansen and uh all of the mckenna brothers material you know that the 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 experiences that the consistencies the the visions uh, uh of course terence's uh 
you know, UFO sightings, seeing the fake the Damsky disc fly over his head, that sort of thing. All that same kind of, I don't know, personality, I guess. There's like a personality going there that is present in the UFO stuff that seems to put it out there and then say, yeah, but that's not really it. Now this is it. <laughs> you know, whatever you, whatever way you pursue, it seems to say, yep, you're on the right track. Oh, no, sorry. Try again. Automatically negating itself. And all of that stuff is present in this, in this, in this psychedelic stuff too. So it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. And I, and I think, uh, you know, there's something there. There is something there that relates back to this in a very, very profound way. If we could just get our heads around it to understand what that is. I mean, as it's still a mystery. I mean, it's still, it's still holding true to its own at this point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess the, the thing that somehow science needs to figure out or, Maybe science doesn't need to figure it out since the shamans seem to have this all under control anyway. Right. I mean, who cares about science at that point? Um, but screw it. I'll play the part of the white guy. The thing science needs to figure out is uh, where is the the demarcation line between personal consciousness and collective? Is there some trigger that you can spill out into this uh, sort of, I don't know, ethereal network uh-huh, yeah. Where you're no longer just yourself experiencing personalized internal consciousness, but actually having this shared internal experience with other people. Yeah. Uh, and with some realm that, for whatever reason, is only accessible internally. Um, there's got to be, you would think, there's got to be a way to to find that demarcation line, no? God, you would think. I mean, because it's all going to, I mean, in some way it does have to have a physical component to it. There does have to be uh, a a brain chemical correlate or a spinal fluid correlate or a Mm -hmm. something, you know, some sort of correlate to, to anchor this stuff in in a rational way, which isn't, or in a material way, which isn't to say that it is a material process purely, but just that it has to have a material correlate. It just has to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So where is it? Well, again, $64,000 question. I don't know. I don't know. Jeff, where is it? Uh, it's right here in my white suit. Oh. <laughs> uh, welcome to Fantasy Island. Um, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think you know there's something there. What it is, I don't know, but it's too strong to ignore all of the, the threads that connect the paranormal and the psychedelic experience. It, it, there's too much. And, and every time you talk to somebody like, like Dennis McKenna in depth and, and get a little more, you see and you, and you get more of it. You see yet another connection to something within ufology. And even when you're not even looking, you're not even talking about that sort of thing. And it just comes up, oh, yeah, well, we – I was curious. What was the visual of this other that they were you know, communing with uh, in the jungle on mushrooms? What – you, you say you personified this into an avatar of some. What did it look like? Well, the mantis. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> there, there we go. You know. And other times it was something akin to a gray, but not quite. You know, close but not quite is good enough uh, to me in that kind of state. You know, how well can you perceive it? How well can you can you hold on to that? 
I mean, here's the other part with the psychedelic experience that's a lot to me like the abduction thing. There's a lot of about a, a psychedelic experience that you won't remember. And just like there's plenty you won't remember in an alien experience, the, the, this level of memory loss is, is prevalent in both cases here. And uh, one of the things that Terrence used to say was to try to get yourself calmed down enough in a psychedelic experience to, to put down kind of a, a stone, like to leave yourself a breadcrumb trail to, to go back and go, yes, I'm okay. Now I've got that. Now let's move on a little further and see what else crops up and then lay a stone there and say, here's the spot and here's where these two connect. And then, when you come out of this, you're bringing more back, uh, and it's you know it's always a matter of trying to stand more uh, in that place instead of just standing there with your mouth gaped open like a moron the way I did. So um, you know I find all of that really fascinating. That even the you know you're having this amazing experience, and yet when you come out of it, you still have this memory loss that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense since at the time, which wasn't that long ago, a few hours, you were enraptured by this thing. But it's it, now that you say that, I mean, think about how much of our, of our journey here in life is memory loss. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you've got <laughs> six to eight hours, I think of sleep, mm-hmm. right. Is the norm or six to nine hours. Yeah. For most people. Yeah. Uh, unless you're Jeff Ritzman and it's like two hours, but for yeah. everyone else um, <laughs> and, and you forget most of it. And it's yeah. really important at the time, and you might have a flavor of it, but usually you forget it. Uh, some people don't, but then even what they don't forget is just you know minimal compared to what they probably did. Right, right, yeah. Uh, you can forget what you did yesterday. Yeah, well, yeah. In, in just normal conscious life. So sure. it's weird. It's weird that we're, you know, what are we? Are we're Clearly, we're, we sort of fancy ourselves, these creatures of psychological time and we say memory is important and we say you know learn from the past and right. build laws and rules and regulations and morals and ethics and all that stuff on on past experience and but really do we or is it to remind ourselves in the future because we're going to forget you know it's like <laughs> yeah because we're not creatures of psychological time that's a lie that's like mm-hmm. a lie that we're it, it, i mean it really is it's like it's like this house with a bunch of cracks in it and we just keep putting that finger in, in the cracks and pretty soon we're going to run out of fingers and toes. And then what are you going to do? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cause, cause you're, you're not that. And so if you're not that, then what are you? Yeah. <laughs> right back to that old thing. Huh? Yeah. 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 It does all come down to that in the end. And, and as you heard, I brought that up in the interview of, you know, we're all trying to figure this stuff out and, you know, we're a little bit more than, evolved monkeys and yet we're trying to figure out all of these deep meaningful questions that you know we probably um wearing the mask of a human being or a person or jeff or jeremy or whoever um that mask is not going to get you through the door you know you've got to kind of leave that with the hat check girl and that's the prerequisite for for going in (laughs) and if you don't do that you're not going anywhere um and and uh yeah, I never like I said before. I've said this before on the show. I never really quite understood what you were getting at with that until I guess fairly recently. But um, but I get it. You know, I get it. And it's and it it seems to 
to be fundamentally obvious to me that that is the truth, you know? Um, I speak so, the truth, Jeff. I what are, what I want to know is where I where do I pay my cult dues? Um, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, urgency it, I, it, is it, now available on Amazon. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it seems fairly obvious at this point that that um, you know we're not what we think we are, and and so we continue on to try and figure out what that means. And uh, um, except and, we don't. Except we mostly try to continue to block it out. Well, yeah, you fight built it. this thing, you know, it's like we've built mm-hmm. this house of cards. Now we really, really want to live in it, you know. Well, we're comfortable here, you know. We're comfortable. I think. I think the, the the comfortability of the reality that you create for yourself is like this is what I'm familiar with. And that's hard to walk away from, I suppose. So, um, and yet it's funny because when people have it wiped away for them, or you know, they have an experience like a near death experience or an enlightenment experience, or Anything like that, uh, a feeling of absolution, you know, even a born-again Christian, you know, feels as if they've had their guilty lives pulled away from them and they're, they're absolved of their sins. You know, all of those sorts of different types of of uh, stepping out of your self-experiences or having the self wiped away, even if momentarily, even if to come back, uh, yeah. they... Uh, are generally blissful, right? And or are always blissful. And so what is it that we're protecting? I mean, what is it we're comfortable with? We only think we're comfortable. But then when you have that that comfort ripped away, it's like there's this even deeper comfort, you know. Yeah. Well, it's the ripping away part that's the hard part, right? I mean, everybody talks about even in a psychedelic experience the loss of the ego. And you've talked about that and how, you know, I asked you one time I said, "Isn't that isn't that rather horrifying to not be aware of yourself or to lose yourself in, in such a way? And you say, well, yeah, that's the whole point. If, you know, the loss of the self is what kind of gets you to a, a bigger awareness of everything. And, um, but that is frightening, I think. I think the idea of uh, uh, and you thought you were dying during your experience, your main one, and a lot of people think you know, during a psychedelic experience that they're going crazy or they're losing touch with – like they're not coming back. I mean, that would be the fear. But I guess once some people, I haven't achieved this, so I don't know. But I'm guessing once people get past that hurdle, they see the bigger picture and they go, "Wow, this is great!" You just—it's getting over that initial hurdle. That is the big thing. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, I have serious doubts whether I'll ever be able to get to that point or not. But I think that's it. I think it's—it's it's just the fear of. This is who I am. Even inside, this is who I am. This is who I think I am anyway. And to have that ripped away is to lose all matter of comfort and, uh, and toehold on reality. And so that's a, I think that's a pretty terrifying thing to most people, not knowing what waits on the other side. So, On that note, do you want to talk about your weird experience earlier this week? Or? No, we'll save that for Friday. Okay. Yeah. Well, on that note... Let's call it a wrap. Yes. And we'll we'll uh we'll save the rest for Friday's show. Great. And once again, folks, uh on our homepage, right now as you're listening to this show, you will find a link to the Kickstarter.com project for Dr. Dennis McKenna called The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. If you choose to go to Kickstarter.com directly, 
you will see a search window at the top of the homepage to Kickstarter. Just type in McKenna, M-C-K-E-N-N-A, and you will see the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss is one of the projects that will come up. Click on that, and you're on the homepage for that book. And uh, and get out there and do your damnedest to let's let's make this happen. <laughs> 